three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play the third recording that I have from an August 1985 Terrence McKenna workshop that was held at the Esalen Institute near Big Sur, California. And when I first tried to listen to this tape, I realized why I'd never heard it before. This is how it sounded for the first part of the tape. And it was uh, even worse in some later spots. As you'll see from the uh, picture of the cassette that I'm posting in the program notes, it's the number six unedited tape from the workshop. And I've already podcast number two and seven tapes, which are the only other ones that I have from this, uh, this workshop at Esalen. Now, the truth is that I never would have spent the time to edit it to a point where, well, we can at least make out most of the words. And I wouldn't have done that except for Graham St. John. Later this year, uh, MIT Press is going to be publishing a biography of Terrence that Graham is now putting the final touches on. And the working title is Terrence McKenna, The Strange Attractor. Now when I told Graham about these yet unheard recordings, he asked me to do what I could to make them more listenable just because there may be some interesting historical background in them. And after he listened to the first one that I cleaned up, he was able to tell me that among the small group of people in this workshop whose voices we hear is Terrence's then-wife, Kat Harrison. Now, my guess is that this may be one of the very first recordings of Terrence that was made at Esalen. And as you listen to this conversation, please keep in mind that it was made over 38 years ago, and we've all learned a lot more about psychedelics since then. Rather than tell you what you're about to hear, why don't I just play the recording and let you listen for yourself? And uh, as you're listening with me, try to keep in mind that this conversation took place seven years before the World Wide Web was invented. In other words, at the time, there wasn't a single website anywhere in the world. It simply hadn't been invented yet. I thought that we hit the botany and Central Africa, 
that seem to be primary pieces of evidence in a new way of looking at the history of the evolution of uh, human beings and, and Western uh, consciousness specifically. Um, I talked a little bit about this first now, but tonight I want to go into it in more detail. The, the human species as it exists on the earth is definitely the most anomalous <clears throat> of uh, the natural history of the planet. I mean, in many, many ontological categories, we are differentiated from the natural surround. And it seems to have to do with our ability to epigenetically code information, to have open-ended adaptive strategies which never trap us to evolutionary cul-de-sacs the way many or most species become that kind of process. Instead, the human, uh, the career of human evolution on the planet has been one of ever-widening options, ever greater accessibility to a larger number of environments, ever greater command over uh, one's own destiny. And I talked the, the other day about the effect of immune stimulating plants on the evolutionary history of evolving primates and how this can confer adaptive advantage. For the last two or three years, Dennis and I have sort of been kicking around an idea that some of you may have heard part of at the Andrupa lecture. I'm not going to give a formal presentation of it tonight, but more kind of the conversational recitation of the main outlines of it. It's basically the idea that if you're willing to admit how it's anything into the body of evidence that can be adduced about the evolution of human beings and consciousness on the planet, then you can construct the scenario the way a detective would of a crime. You can construct the scenario of what must have happened on this planet to be the situation that we're in. I don't find the evolution of intelligent species to be something which I can't conceive of arising out of the normal set of evolutionary sculpting processes that neo-Darwinianism recognizes. But what has always seemed to me the, the improbable part was the speed with which the process occurred. That the human brain in 30,000 years changed more than it had changed in the previous three million years. And this, this seems to me to indicate that there was some kind of radical new factor introduced and that speeded, if you want to put it that way, speeded the process of evolution to a direction or channeled it in some kind of trio. And the scenario seems to begin in the uh, inevitable climatological flux 
of the planet that goes on over periods of millions of years from wet to dry, so that even as early as three million years ago, uh, it's possible to detect retractions in the Amazon, I mean, in the African continental forest cover in a response to drought and drying up. And so the scenario basically is that as the African continent dried, the arboreal primates were trapped in a shrinking uh, habitat, and they began to foray onto the ground at the same time that grasslands were evolving, and with them, these large herds of ungulate animals. And also, as I mentioned the other day, these carnivorous pack-hunting animals like dingoes and dogs. The uh, omnivorous habits of these primates put them in a position to, once established on the ground as bipedal hunting animals, uh, to integrate the flesh of these large mammals into their diet, and they began following these great herds, which were the major concentrations of protein in this now grassland environment. At that point, it, on a, on a uh, regular and reinforced basis, they would have begun to contact any coprophytic mushroom, mushrooms which grow in the mule, any coprophytic mushroom which might have been uh, associated with these animals. Now, at that point, then, a feedback mechanism comes into play where the association of the numinous through the ingestion of the mushrooms, which are tested, as all plants are tested in that kind of situation for their nutritional value, the integration of the mushrooms into the diet establishes the notion that the cow is the source of this ecstatic experience in the same way that it is the source of food and nurturing, and in fact it then becomes a kind of maternal symbol for excellence. And my idea is, or the idea that we've worked out, is that all of the goddess talk, which can be found in, in the Paleolithic and early Neolithic period, if you have cattle and you have a goddess, then you probably also have a, uh, a hallucinogenic mushroom as the, the very component of this trinity. And uh, this guy unfolded Jeff James, who described himself as an ethno-mycological art historian, <laughs> searches the world's literature for images of mushrooms. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Venus of Wallenberg, which is a very famous piece uh, of very early DNR. Well, he pointed out to me that the, the corn rolling or the knob on the head of the Venus of Wallenberg make it look like the cap of an Alameda mascara with its warping. And once this motif is called to your attention, a startling number of these objects take on a new Appearance. Uh, Maria Gunbuta in her book, The Goddesses and Gods of Old 
see, there is an earlier layer of scholarship which overlays this question of the mushrooms in history, and that's the work of Gordon Watson. He wanted to say that uh, Amanita muscaria used in the subarctic regions was carried by Indo-Aryan people into Mesopotamia and the Hindu Kush approximately 3500 BC at the Soma and that it then died out in India when, when the uh, supply of Soma to Indo. The notion that I'm beginning to play with is that actually all religions, uh, well, number one, that all religion in prehistory is psychedelic religion, but that the great world religions of prehistory were much mushroom religions, and they were uh, not necessarily uh, convivial to each other. And so what you have in the tropical latitudes is the evolution of this cattle, copper-pitted, cattle-related psilocybin complex. And in the Arctic region, the, the mycorrhizal-birch-amanita-reindeer relationship and the difference in the experiences, if you can make broad comparisons, is that the amanita-muscaria experience is one of inner heat, great muscular feats are supposedly performed. It's the drug of an Arctic country, basically. It's almost like one shape the other. On the other hand, the, the mushroom cult is a feminine, uh, communal, it's more like a mystery religion. It is, it is not, I think, a, a, a violent thing, although you could argue that the religion is not a In any case, this established this mushroom religion that grew up in Africa, and I want to show you now. I'll pass these around. These are stacks of drawings of Patmaid that will be published shortly, possibly in a number of places. Of these images from the Tuscany Plateau in uh, southern Algeria, and what the situation there is, is a very large rock escarpment which, that is cut yeah. by the women, both north-south and east-west, yeah. so that the aerial photographs of it, it actually looks like a bombed-out European city. But when you're on the ground, it's these endless over-drooping canyons that have been cut by the wind, and according to the account we've read, Neolithic uh, chips and shards littered the ground for for several feet over huge areas. And there are is an enormous repository of art spanning four millennia at least. And the earliest stuff is this kind of stuff. No scholar that we've been able to locate has ever called attention to the fact that this clearly depicts the established use of mushrooms. One of these drawings that's going around shows a group of people running in a line with their arms raised, carrying mushrooms, and surrounded by some kind of network of rods and balls 
that is actually very suggestive of the The other drawing is a shaman facing outward, wearing what I interpret to be the kind of bone aprons that you see in Central Asian shamanism of uh, Nepal and Tibet. Mushrooms are sprouting out of his body. He holds mushrooms in his hand, and he is, his head has turned into the head of an insect or a wasp. Oh, the reference is this book, which is called The Rock Paintings of Stella, and it is uh, by, uh, it's a beautiful book, I think, by Andre Leroy Gourhan, World Publishing Company. Oh no, Jean-Dominique Lavigne. I'll pass this around to you. Be careful with it. The pages are uh, coming on, on done. But you can see that beyond these two examples that we concentrated on, there is an immense sensitivity to the portrayal of tackle. And these people were in the tackle. And my notion is that they, as the Saharan conditions became more Europhitic, became more drawn out, and this is orthodox, those desert people became settled in the Nile Valley, basically, and became the proto-Egyptian people. But not all of them. Some of them migrated across the Horn of Arabia, which even then, it may have, may have been a land bridge there, even recently, five or six thousand years ago. This is where the Arabian food is swinging out from the African continent. Is a place where the continental tectonics happen very active. Anyway, these people crossed then over into the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, and there they established themselves as goddess worshipping, cattle uh, herding, matriarchal societies, which were in place when these Aryan people swept down and uh, and intermingled with them. And there's a fair bit of evidence for this in the fact that Soma, the god of the intoxicant of the baby Darren, was a masculine moon god, and that at, at Haran in northern uh, in the northern Sumerian cultural area, there was a god named Nana who was a masculine moon god, and in fact the father of which is the multi-figured goddess who is usually thought of as the goddess of the ancient Near East, but actually in an earlier pantheon, she was the daughter of Nana. Well, what is the point of all this archaeological obscurantism? Basically just to show that uh, the formulation of consciousness in the early stages and in the intermediate stages, right up until the perfection of the Eucharist, the formulation of the outlines of human consciousness is being determined by these symbiotic kind of relationships. Uh, yeah.
we are used to paying lip service to the idea that human beings are very material and then that you say it and you don't think too much about it. But human beings uh, that have biodynamic hallucinogens circulating in their uh, bloodstream are certainly uh, very interesting, very compelling, very mysterious. It says, and, and we have all these assumptions that we understand what we're doing, you know, that it's a plant, we're an animal, this is history, I'm a scientist, all these little stories that we tell ourselves to hold it all together. But the fact is that uh, we don't really know what we're dealing with at all. We have no notion of it. I mean, it, we call down concepts like extraterrestrials or a genus loci or God Almighty, for that matter. I mean, many people have no trouble believing that that's what's going on. So it is what Jung called a tremendum. And then the challenge is to carry out an analysis of the tremendum that is not reductive. Because obviously the major ontologically distinguishing factor about the commandment is that it is irreducible. It is the self-mental object that we have talked about in the first place. It is a mental object, even as the mind is an organ of the human body. It simply is an organ that is not manifest in three dimensions. It manifests itself in time. The relationship of thought to uh, brain chemistry has yet to be demonstrated very convincingly. I mean, the brain may have as much to do with the real moment-to-moment cognition as the liver does. It's just a conceit of neurophysiology, you know, that they are grappling with the organ of thought. But, uh, no less the thinker on the subject than Sir John actually decided finally that he could only embrace a clean dualism. And he said, and I mean, you probably heard me quote this comment, he said that, you know, the brain is a piano, the mind is Horowitz. And you're not going to understand Horowitz by ripping apart pianos. That's the posture. And yes, it is good because you can carry through the image because it said that it's a Horowitz who plays quantum mechanical keys and saying that if there was a force outside the bounds of known physics that could begin a single, that could affect a single electron if it could find an electron that was poised in a sufficiently uncertain dynamic state, it could, by moving with one electron, begin a cascade of electrons, which would then become a self-replicating natural electrical current, basically, or a force in matter. In other words, we don't need alchemistics except on the level of being able to push one electron over into a slightly different psychic state. And this may be what thought is. The psychedelics get 
right down on it. The reason we can have such empathy with these shamans is because once you get with the shamans and get loaded, the pretension that you are a delegate from an advanced society and they are some kind of primitive is perfectly ridiculous. Clearly nobody knows what's happening. Everybody has myths. They have myths. We have myths. But the smart people on both sides know that the real thing is past telling. And uh, nevertheless, it's worth making the effort to do this, to try and understand what religion is, how the notion of God is tied into this, how the modern archetype of the extraterrestrial visitor is tied into this, and most importantly, how language is somehow mediated by, by uh, psychedelics and by ordinary thought processes in some way that we don't expect or understand. The world is malleable in some fundamental way which we have not yet cognized. And uh, tomorrow we'll see uh, films of objects being transformed into hyperspatial objects through computer graphics. Uh, this is one model for it. All magic, every magical act you can conceive of, every miracle you've ever heard of, is trivial. If there is one more spatial dimension, see, then all locked boxes are in fact open on one side, and all past events are in fact present, and so forth and so on. Flatland is an analogous notion going downward. Well, so then if the brain is this hyperdimensional or more than three-dimensional organ, then isn't the, this, isn't our dilemma that we are somehow caught in three-dimensional space, unable to explore the complete expression of our freedom except in the imagination? And so here is this theme again of the imagination and how psychedelic but imagination is a uh, healing tone word for fourth dimension, in a way, if you can conceive of it as large enough. And in some sense, then, it must be that the, the inside and the outside are, are co-mappable upon each other. And this was the alchemical notion that has survived the 2,500 years of rational discourse Nevertheless, the notion that as above, so below, that there is mapping in, from the interior of the human brain and heart onto the larger universe has been sustained. So, trying to get a grip on this is very difficult. We need to uh, <coughs> think about our physics as provisional, think about all our models as provisional, and realize that experiential data, which is primary, which 
comes to you from the experience of your being supersedes all the myths. I mean, there is no reason to believe in the Newtonian doctrine of simple location, meaning that you can only be in one place at one time. If you've experienced otherwise, why should you trade in your experience for someone else who you don't respect their assurance that you're in error? And what the psychedelics do is they uh, make it impossible to uh, be blasé about experience. Well, but they don't follow any norm. They don't reinforce the idols of the tribe. Normally, experience does. Because that's what the school of hard knocks is. That's where you keep making mistakes in culturally unsanctioned ways. Well, I mean, you have the experience that the sun goes around the earth, but you know that it doesn't. You know, I mean, you can't just blindly. Experience can be no, quite deceiving. The fact of the matter is that the sun does not. It is possible to describe a system in which the sun goes around the earth. It's also possible to describe a system where the earth goes around the sun. And all practical housekeeping matters can be solved equally in both systems. It's simply the rather abstract notion of mathematical elegance that causes someone to proclaim that the earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. From a higher mm -hmm. sphere of reference, either description is mm -hmm. quite accurate. So that shows the relativistic nature of these models. What do you think about the edge of it all? About the content of the psychedelic experience and the suggestion that, or the feeling that pervades it that it could have a, an historical impact of some sort, except that it's so elusive. Do you feel that? My, my experience last Nice. It was like a new read. Because I, I start to understand your theory in a way that at the end is light and sound. One wind. They hybridize. They get tuned to this. Everything becomes white, like metallic. It just completely dissolved. From that point, Form is, is very down below the heart. And center. Yes. Yeah. It's like a tremendous mm -hmm. And I believe that the channel space manipulates the sound. The magic sound, the magic channel somehow manipulates, manipulates the distance. And what do you think, as someone who speaks a multiple of languages, how does it affect your perception of all these languages, or does it? One, one thing that I noticed is that uh, like my, my organs began to like make another foreign language, which I didn't understand. It was just like, you know, the form of the definition has nothing to do with language. And, 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 and the words like before, it's something that is strange. Like just one word 
and the world dissolves into unity. And then you have to make really a big effort to put the words together and, you know, communicate. I try to communicate. This one word has a lot of meaning, but for the other one, it's not. It's a light that you are not meaning the people. So you hear all the connections in every word. Yes, I think that, you know, in Kingdom's way, this attempt is made to realize the, the hyperdimensionality of words, that words are, uh, have histories, and that you can see behind a word another word and then another word, and these trees of connection, to try and create a language where all the associations are on the surface at one time, so that essentially every word spoken is a pun at many levels. And uh, this is interesting, Dennis. In this tape that was reconstructed from the night before we did the experiment with La Chirera, a part of the rap, which I had completely forgotten, was this whole thing about how making a farm saucer is very analogous to making a of some sort, and that somehow it is a pun, and and that if this could be fully understood, it's like a pun in this translinguistic visible language. It's a pun not mm-hmm. in an audio language, but in a visual language. And the question of whether mm-hmm. or not it's real or not, or the way that it can be both real and unreal, is in the same way that the key word in a pun has two meanings, and one of them is the primary meaning, and the other one is the other meaning which causes the pun to come into existence, and the tension or the humor or the meaning or the vitality is as the mind oscillates mm-hmm. from one to the other. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, when, I, when we were down in, in Calpa, I was surprised hearing that I don't know. No. That the people, they conceive reality, they consider the brain divided in two. And there, there is no reality in either the either of the hemispheres. But only they are like oscillating. And when they agree about the reality of something, then reality will be created. And, and it will be it will be then, then uh, understood by this third mind. Hmm? So this is like this. And this is the idea that the only things which are real are unions of opposites, which are paradoxes. And in, in Latin, coincidentia positonic. This is the idea. The alchemical stone is wet and dry, hot and cold, black and white, day and night, love and hate. So how can it be that? Things are either one or the other. But the fact of the matter is that things are never either one or the other. The idea that things are either one or the other is the elemental error of self-description that has betrayed us into history. The fact that we insisted that it be one or the other, that either or insistence is lies at the basis of science. You know, and then matter is, spirit is not. Not realizing that how can you say matter is and spirit is not when you require a perceiving being to even formulate the future? 
sanctification that is self-destructive of the argument. What do you think, Dennis, about the, the way the psychedelic relationship to language, do you think it's trivial? Do you think that it can be analyzed at the level of destructive brain states like synthetic glossolalia? Or do you think it's some kind of uh, something more profound? Well, no, I mean, I don't believe it's trivial at all. I, I do think that psychedelics have something to do with the evolution of life. It, it seems to me that this argument you're making about evolution, I mean, what, obviously the adaptations that had to take place in order for us to become symbol-manipulating linguistic creatures, uh, and they didn't happen overnight, they happened uh, over a relatively short period of time, you know, but not, I mean, not, not really 30,000 years, more like about a million years. But I think that I mean, I think that, yeah, but it was a two-way process, I mean, as, as whether it's from the ingestion of these concerning plants or whatever, there was, uh, for some reason, the brain had to adapt itself to the manipulation of symbols, and the psychedelics, you know, because of their synesthetic properties, would contribute to this. I mean, I think that, that basically... You know, the, the evolution of a species has been conditioned by all of these chemical interactions that it's involved. And probably possibly going back, way back. I mean, well, in other words, in other words, the focus, do you think that the psychedelic experience was present in the mushroom before people ate mushrooms? Or do you think that it evolved as people ate mushrooms. Because if it was in the mushroom before people ate it, then that means it's some kind of autonomous, intelligent thing. Well, but I don't know. I don't think it's in the mushroom. It's in the mind. It's in the uh-huh. But I don't you think that maybe in prehistory it was? Like anamnesis, it's like the platonic doctrine that 
everything, that all learning is reclaimed for it.
for the, the humans and the plants and the interrelationship is certainly all there and however that information is stored. That's right. Well, and what happens and how you experience what happens are two different things. The notion that uh, that the mushroom consciousness is somehow putting you in touch with a planetary being or, or uh, something like the Gaia idea, but more with a will, is very interesting. And I think this goddess thing in prehistory is the way people formulated it because it was the way they perceived it and it was it still is very much a part of the deep psychedelic experience and in fact part of the social reform that I hope will come out of psychedelics is this revivifying uh, of this goddess archetype. Did you, Kat, do you want to say anything about that? about how it relates to this African thing, or, or about your experiences? Well, um, I don't have really the archaeological aspect under my belt, but um, I know a lot of uh, people, particularly women, that uh, just love people and love to be able to become aware of the, the notion of the goddess you know, being talked about and written about. And, and some people are having direct experience of it, and that's <clears throat> what I feel lucky to have had a number of times in the past year or so. Um, on mushrooms, um, the mushroom seems to me to change its focus. I, I was wondering, Dennis started to say something about this, if you want to carry on really, that about what the mushroom is. You always credited it, but it's these are PhD initials or something, like having this information, having that personality or something. And I don't know uh, if I can do that exactly, but it does seem to at least be a window which looks out here and then after a while it looks out there and you get to look through it to see whatever happens to be in that direction. That changes somewhat with that and saying all the things that I had this sensation over the years that it has actually areas of interest with this and so there's a lot of that attributes a certain African method something like that. Um, so in the last uh, <coughs> year and a half of my experience, it's been very interesting it seems to me to the same people. It's instead of taking us into the bizarre, the unthinkable, and outer space, it's realized, maybe through this symbiosis, which has grown so much in our usage of it in recent years, the number of people on Earth taking into mushroom energy. So, so maybe it's um, appreciating us. And I don't know where, what the goddess's relationship to the mushroom is. Anyway, my look through that window some time ago, I said a few words, sort of like you were saying about the time being the space you know, a few words of invocation asking for this experience of the goddess because someone has said to me, you ought to ask for this. And she came. And uh, I was just astonished in seconds 
scares you up, you know, looking through the window, you know, were all over the side. There she was for hours, just being in my ear, and I just feel the breathing, and I was her, and she was me, and I asked many questions, and I thought, I could write an article, I interviewed the goddess. It was great. <laughs> 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 and it was just like very, I had my wish about me enough to ask these questions, and she was real, you know, just happened to be about a million times bigger than I was, <laughs> and answered. And since then, uh, on mushrooms, I've had a number of contacts with her. Well, before that, I had no predilection to believe that there was a goddess underlying everything. One of the first questions I had was, well, what about God? <laughs> you know, what about all the gods and goddesses? And we talked about this at an earlier uh, at a meeting last year, someone that um, quickly also she said about that that everyone has many gods and goddesses. We do now too. We just name them different things: but that they're all really fragmentations uh, of her. That they are like her children, in that if you broke her up into many parts, you would have these many. Um, forms of the ways that she can be manifested. That's what the Greek gods were as well. And historically we know that in fact there was of course the mother goddess and then there were the ones who became her lovers and her babies and her adversaries and her self and her lesser and less charming forms often. Um, but I guess what I feel about this because I'm not really academically oriented to it at all, I always find myself saying to the few people I've talked to it about, um, my experience is this is not a, uh, an important perception about history or an important metaphor for the life force or the great spirit, but that whatever we want to call it, this is a living being force in all of us, as you were saying, it is the fact that we don't, uh, that when we perceive correctly, we don't distinguish ourselves from a blade of grass or a fish or, a, or another person. And, and the, the way that I have seen it is that uh, the goddess is this ever influx, uh, life-affirming, energy which um, has an insatiable appetite for experience and that's one reason we're all here is to experience through each of us our own particular kink on the whole thing you know how we work together and it's as though she has like a billion fingers in each one of us is a fingertip you know that night, I was blessed to have her be looking at my fingers at me, you know? <laughs> but that's why I just, was I her, was she me, is she you? Yes. So I, I feel this is my um, poetic mission recently, is to turn people on to the idea that it is a living goddess in everyone of us, and we need to enjoy it. And that visualization is such a powerful thing that if we can shift our, our models which are imposed from without and are so strong that even when we take psychedelics, we're always still under the thumb of those models. If we can shift our models to something else, something like this, or however you want to envision it, that it gives you that feeling of 
the great life force welling up through you all the time, that's part of the work. That's part of the big work, which is helps to answer the question, what do we as individuals who love psychedelic plants do to save the world? I think it's actually, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just add one thing, not just women, and it's not just now. The reason that I'm here and the reason I'm starting with psychedelic drugs is the first profound trip I ever had and the first contact experience I had. Never having had a voice in my head was in a trance on psychedelics where the guy that showed up to me and gave me a real long laugh about how I could change my ass. And, and including a long discussion about, you know, what about God, what about God, what about the tradition of whatever. And that was November of 1981. Mm-hmm. And my favorite profile was similar in content but different and had to do with the unity of the goddess with the, with the technique, with the male principle of striving on stuff. Set, this may sound a little positive. Uh, to the last movement of the model race, which is the setting of the Faust, the last scene. Um, a real great Hindu goddess and profound jumping off. And they happen within two weeks of each other. And they were the first time any of us had ever seen the vision. Yes, it's not just women. I mean, it is this feminization of, of the earth, of our awareness of Gaia, of the earth, and our need to nurture ourselves as well as so that we don't do ourselves. And I asked her, you know, when I asked about the gods, what are all these gods, and what about them, and how, what are they for, kind of, you know? And there was this talk about um, the feminine being the ground, and the masculine being the what manifests out of the ground, and that it requires, of course, both it would be pretty laid back if they were only feminine. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of possible, but not a lot of. The rap that I got is males provide entertainment. But then I, I, and then as we talk about this, you know, I look out over the horizon, way up the coast, and I have by myself out by the ocean, and um, and I looked out over the horizon and I saw, and she was black and jeweled and fantastic and went from horizon to horizon over my head, you know, like the great Egyptian policy. And um, out on the horizon was this guy, great, classic, Greek, beautiful man in armor made of stars. He was like that tall, he was maybe a sixth her size, you know. I guess really the beauty of the masculine just shone, you know, it was fantastic. But he was also totally armored and weapons and everything, you know, and I said, who is that? And she said, that's Mars, and I love you dearly, and he is my son, and he is my lover, but he also is just kicking me in constantly, and, and that's who is causing so much of the trouble right now, you know, and it's no joke, we can really make trouble. So this is what we have, you know. Then I went outside a little while later and I saw that Mars actually was just a few inches above the roof line where I was looking. I just met these things. Can you ask, um, you know, can you go into um, a, a session at church with an intention, you know, the stated intention, like I would like, I want to uh, evoke, invoke the goddess, you know, or 
I didn't do that with, with Adam last time. I was just meeting with a friend, a girlfriend, and I asked if it was a relationship and other things. And it came, even the teaching came from the, can you also do this with uh, my friends? That's what I did with this and I've done it a number of times. Yes, it doesn't always work. Sometimes we think we know what we need and actually, you know, you can find out what we need. But, but it does often, I think. I find that if I put myself in wilderness or isolation from my dislike, you know, which keeps me right down, then uh, I, I, I could be a communication. It also helps if you do a fairly lengthy series of thoughts. For example, we trip mm. usually on Saturday, and the week before is the preparation for the trip, which may be if it's really chemical or plant-oriented preparing. But if it's on a particular mix, we want to explore a question of the matter of what should I ask and should I go in for. And that seems to work a lot better. Allocation, you get really slammed around and you get feedback. So the cosmic joke answer to the question that you asked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the conventional magical tools would be a cult to a certain extent where possible. Invocation. You just talk to. You mm-hmm. just say, you know, thing, show yourself, come forth, thing, unfurl. Show, show, oh, and it Out of the way, and I lay down, <laughs> and I felt uh, 
I felt a hand on my shoulder, and it's very cool voice, sort of like a uh, Lufthansa spirit said <laughs> They say it helps if you close your eyes, cowboy. <laughs> so, so I closed my eyes. It gets better. <laughs> so I closed my eyes, and, and the thing just... You know, first you see what you think it is completely blown away, and then you see what it is blown away, and then it's still, it's just like nuclear explosion. I mean, you imagine that everybody from Seattle to Tijuana must have just hit the floor. You say, my God, this is a mental event. This, this is a, like a thought or something, you know, because so this is going on, and after a while, and as the radiation and the light dies down, I, I open my eyes and look up, and this very tall, long-legged woman with a, a green mohawk and all this body armor leaning over me with her face right down next to mine, and she says, is it strong enough for you, asshole? <laughs> <laughs> So I worked on being a better acolyte to the goddess, and I haven't had experiences like that. But it's better to be supplicant, I think. Or maybe it's that you you don't get what you want; you get what you. Sir. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. You just you have a smorgasbord of metaphysical choices. That's the flying saucers, the goddess. How does all this work? Once I in dialogue with the mushroom, I I was asking about all this and said. And it said, you know, that extraterrestrials, that all intelligent species communicate among themselves, but they don't communicate with individuals, that we are like cells, in this case, in some vast organism, and that human history is the human response to an extraterrestrial message which is partly us responding and partly the message, and that it's a dance, an informational dance, and that this is, these dances go on between the stars. But, you know, the mushroom is full of <coughs> answers. It's like that Robert Gray's book of essays, uh, Difficult Questions, Easy Answers, he called his book. This is what the mushroom loves. Think of a difficult question. It has an easy answer. The problem is making sense of the easy answer. I mean, it, it produces aphorisms, which are very puzzling, which are almost like koans. I asked it once the same question Eduardo mentioned. What is man? And he said, what you call man is time. What does that mean? It seems like it means something. It seems like perhaps if you understood it fully, it would be illuminating. On the other hand, perhaps it's gibberish. It's very hard to tell. 
that the way that language undergoes transformation is phenomenal. There can be many kinds of language, not only what we were talking about earlier today, the sound which becomes <coughs> visible, where you begin singing and then slowly the, the sound condenses and is beheld, but in an object, self, self-sustaining objects made out of sound and light pour out of your body. But there can also be more cybernetically related uh, trips with language. For instance, some of you may have heard me describe an experience I had where I was sailing along fine, describing everything to myself, and suddenly every 20th word was made no sense, and then every 18th word, and then every 16th word, and I could see that it was falling away from me, that grammar was just exploding and sliding and being lost, and that I was going to lose it completely, and then I did lose it completely, and it was transformed into one of these outbursts of glossolalia. So it, it's uh, we need we all should give each other permission to explore in terms of what we do. I mean, we should not only if we're going to do these things, we should also dance, sing, make love, all kinds of things. Uh, we almost never discuss the erotic potential of psychedelics because that's just we'll pumping a gasoline <laughs> on the fire. But Kat and I, years ago in Hawaii, discovered this thing which seemed real enough that you could do some some kind of research on it, which was we were taking all these things in various situations and we were newly <coughs> together and in love, but we noticed that... Um, when we were, when we had a lot of skin touching, and we were stoned on psilocybin, and it was hot, this was the thing that made it seem objective. It seemed it required a lot of sweat, so that there was actually an electrolytic solution between the two membranes. You do merge. You just merge. You become electrically a single entity, and then when you pull away. You know, it stops, and when you bring the the skin together again, it happens. Uh, this is a, some kind of limited form of telepathy because it requires that people be entwined together. Nevertheless, it's proof of concept. In True Hallucinations, I describe this amazing incident where uh, an experience that I had had in Nepal that you need to pay $80 to find out what it was, <laughs> was uh, I had never told anyone about this because it was so shocking and outrageous. And Dennis was uh, listed as mad and was hanging in his hammock raving one morning at La Chirera. And I was sitting there fiddling, and suddenly he locks in to the conversation between myself and this woman 18 months earlier in Nepal. And he's running through it word for word. First my voice he imitates, then her voice he imitates, who he'd never met. And you know, all these other people are working around the camp, and I look around, (laughs) and I'm in a complete 
with it because I realize he's proving that telepathy, this absolutely beyond ordinary physics thing, is happening right in front of me. But nevertheless, my main concern is to suppress it immediately <laughs> because it involves personal disgrace. <laughs> so, you know. Is that good if you remember? No. No, he I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. One, you know, one additional thing you may kind of expect from Dan, one of the things we've, uh, we've done a lot of that when you're loaded, is that those are excellent techniques for either controlling, say, when you're really, really quick trying to pull something out of it, or for get, using it to get higher. Right. And that's something that we would suggest to other people if they are working in this area, that, you know, tantric techniques work, dancing techniques work, in okay. fact, all kinds of techniques work. I mean, mantras work. You know, I mean, if you get into a bad spot on a psychedelic and you have the most remedial knowledge of mantras, you know, just whip off a quick om tat sat and see where that gets you. I mean, it's almost as if you are inhabiting that energy world that is the province of classical shamanism and yoga. It all works visualization, mantra, mudra, all of these things which never got a rise out of me, unstoned. I mean, I just, I was in India and did the whole thing and I just had no time for it, you know. I mean, I'm really fairly critical of, that's why I was teasing Ralph about including yoga, because I think, you know, that Hindu society is horribly stratified and uh, xenophobic and conservative and I mean, the Mahabharata specifically forbid eating mushrooms, you know, and the Mahabharata prescribed the lifestyle of the Brahmins of India. So, uh, these earlier techniques, it's, it's a certain anarchy is required, you see. And, and politically, I think that what psychedelics push toward is anarchy. And, and that it's an anarchy of the goddess. It's the anarchical kingdom of the goddess. And that's why America is a place where the, where the psychedelic thing has taken root so strongly. Because our governing theory really is, I believe, that everyone should be away, able to get away with as much as possible <laughs> without driving other people crazy. You know, I mean, that's really the American ideal. And that's a commitment to anarchy. That's a commitment to kind of ultimate freedom, that we really wanted responsible anarchy. In fact, the only kind that's possible, anarchy through responsibility. And you attain this sense of responsibility, because it's a sense of responsibility to everybody and everything, you attain it by dissolving the body boundary and discovering that you are you, but you could have been him or her or that. And uh, and then the way toward anarchy is possible. These societies, these micro-societies in the Amazon, which we admire so much, you know, are its tradition is the only law. And then the mediator, the mediation of tradition is the power of personality. So that a person can, a, a headman or a curaca can actually do a non-traditional thing 
if his force of personality is sufficient, that he can argue for it. And these ayahuascaros have great force of personality. They are the major innovators in the culture. So I think anarchy, responsible anarchy, is what we're working toward and what seems achievable on psychedelics. I mean, it was trivialized in the 60s when people began running around saying we can solve all the world's problems if we will only take LSD, which then what it was. Well, it didn't turn out it didn't work that way. But the reason those people thought that was because the first 10,000 people who took it, if everybody had been like them, that would have been true. You know, because Aldous Huxley and, and Hoffman and these people, they got it to thinkers, mystics, theologians, artists, poets, uh, managers. If everybody were like the top 5% of the human race, we could get them squared away in a big hurry. Well, with or without LSD. With or without LSD, <laughs> that's probably true. Was but uh, the problem is that there's a, a lumpen element that is much in control and um, not to be denied. So how to work around this, I'm not sure. Uh, what does the goddess say about that? was the question I was going to ask. Good question. Assuming I said to you the first night, it's such a paradox, you know, the magnificence of these, um, these realms, these experiences, um, and the uh, imminence, it seems, of the uh, apocalypse. Apocalypse. The apocalypse, uh, yeah, something, some kind of annihilation. This, maybe it's a personal thing that I'm going through with my mushroom experiences, but that's what seems to come up a lot, the mushroom saying that
there would be outbreaks of religious fanaticism and then ages of fascism and then outrageous bloody revolts and new democracies which decayed into imperial systems which were then overthrown. And he just went on and on and on and finally said, you know, what is the way to avoid this? And it said, man must have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you become part of somebody else's plan. And this is what I think we don't have. We do not have a plan. And when somebody like Jerry Brown, you know, you're laughed off the screen if you try to talk about anything more than five years into the future. I mean, I don't think a space station is such a mind-boggling notion that we should just congratulate ourselves on our poetic genius for thinking about it. Most people can't even commit themselves to something like that. We need a plan, and there is no plan. It's dog-eat-dog. The rule that applies on the national level is, you know, the devil takes the hindmost, and yet we're a global civilization. I don't see any policy-making body moving ahead with any sort of global conception about where we are going. Do we want zero growth and ecological balance and control of industry and restriction of nuclear mining and this sort of thing? Do we want to be a space-faring society and, and export billions in capital investment off the planet? I mean, Nobody knows. Nobody has a clue. If you have an opinion on these subjects, you're some kind of a nut. And yet, this is what it's all about. And, uh, and the psychedelics, by giving you the big picture, my God, if they do anything, they teach you to think in spans of time and chunks of space larger than yourself. But they also, yep. as you said, they make you sort of an anarchist. So, I mean, it's hard to organize a group of psychedelics because there are sort of anarchists. They're very, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. And, and many people have a sort of aversion to that. Mm-hmm. I, I heard someone say that if uh, all the good people in the world organize themselves into committees, the forces of evil should surely triumph. <laughs> no, because, because it has to go around one person with by itself will acquire power and will dominate the minds of the others. Mm-hmm. You can see that every time, every time any psychedelic gets popular, there's a right way to take it and there's a wrong way to take it. And that's bullshit. And it's happened every psychedelic has become popular. Yes, although I think that, to, that psilocybin has been remarkably resistant to publicity. Well, that's the first thing that a drug must be exactly. to not be destroyed. It must be uh, a rare and precious thing, hard to get a hold of, not trivial. So, no, I, I actually see what I would say abused, but it's been very low. Abused, you mean? Just used without uh, recognition of its uh, significance. Yeah, but it's, but that it's almost trivial. Yeah, trivialized. Not abuse. I mean, it is a, it's an abuse of the concept, but it isn't. Uh, but but I don't think that psychedelics necessarily make us see what is happening and in a position to step in and take control of our destiny. I think I think that what psychedelics make us see is that we never have been in control of our destiny. I mean, so it's always been orchestrated by someone else, you know, or some some thing else, someone else, or some other set of 
circumstances. I mean, in other words, we've gotten to this point where we're clearly ready to to step off the edge in a whole different manner of ways, everything from space travel to genetic engineering to the merging of cybernetics and neurology and all these things. And these things and these things have just happened. It's almost as though we haven't had that much to do with them. They've just sort of sprung up as a result of their own momentum and everybody so working in because I would love uh, that sort well, of. Well, no, I don't necessarily think so. Because there, are, there are both good trans and bad trans. I mean, there are a lot of bad trans, but I, as well as good ones, you know, I think it's basically a race between the two. It's either annihilation or transformation. That is very much creation, and and you can have a vision, you can be in touch with the and you go out into the world and see the mystery stuff happen. If you don't act on it, you don't connect, then it's going to fall along. So you have to connect. So you have to connect. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
from uh, asteroids. It would be mm-hmm. mighty handy to have uh, the 20th century's fissionable material around to throw at something like that if you found out it was on the way any time in the next uh, 10,000 years. That'll be very useful. He'd say, thank God those people back in the 20th century stockpiled all those nuclear weapons. Or where would we be now? So it is hard to know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think somebody's <laughs> written that. about this and oh, really? shown that he hung that's out with some. Yeah, that's a Horowitz question. Yeah. This guy yeah. knows yeah. what Louisa May Alcott was shooting. <laughs> knows, <laughs> you know what Charles Dickens was into and how T.S. Eliot's wife. Did you know that T.S. Eliot's wife was so into Easter that she used to excuse herself from formal <clears throat> dinner parties and the house would just reeked of it and it was a scandal. <laughs> but yes, Lewis Carroll, I, I mentioned Jabberwocky before, and that's his best known uh, experiment with language. And it's very interesting. He was obviously on to something. I mean, he knew how to invoke uh, meaning through sound so that words like slithy toes and gyred and gimbled in the waves. These things have meaning and they call up images. He does the same thing in The Honey of the Snark. Mm -hmm. And the mushroom scene in Alice in Wonderland and all that stuff about looking glass girls. No, there's a strong strain of this. People like H.P. Lovecraft and uh, and how many of you know that woman who wrote Ice? What is her name? She has a strange name. Anyway, she was heavily into drugs in the 1920s and in polite society and wrote these bizarre novels. Nika Walteri, the Finnish author. She also wrote the Egyptian? Amanita Really? It's just that in, it's in this context, that it's in this time and place, that because we're so desperate for social solutions, you know, that now everything must be looked at for its uh, possible salvational effect, so that things as innocuous as drug habits and things like that are examined for their application to the culture crisis. This talk that we were just having before this about uh, apocalypse and how do you deal with it in your heart and all this um, reminded me of Eric Grunch, who was a friend of ours and was in all his books, um, Designed for Evolution. The Self-Organizing Universe. A great system. Wonderful. Yeah. And he, um, he felt a lot of pain in his life, but he had great trust in flux. That's what he had been at. Do you remember it that way? That's how he would see whatever happened and whatever seemed imminent and appalling was fluctuation. He could always see that over the road in the next part of the world. <coughs> and all time has been, and all time will be, and surely part of that, those fluctuations. And it just, whenever I start to get panicked like that about, oh wow, you know, it looks like too tight to fix you, it's not very far away. 
That's a big worry. I mean, I mean, you have to get them off as soon as possible. That, that yeah, is basically pressure. what the race is. History is like the breaking of an egg. You know, it's like a pregnancy. For ten thousand years now, the planet has borne in its body this thing, which is growing larger and larger and taking more and more energy. As you can tell, I'm not a great sound engineer, so this is about the best I can do to make this recording more listenable. And my guess is that this may also have been the first workshop in which Paul Herbert began recording Terence McKenna. Uh, fortunately, he got really good with recording as time progressed. And like you, I've listened to a lot of Terence's lectures and conversations, and while I probably heard him say it before, 
This is the first time that I actually remember him saying it like this, and I quote, We always call it the mushroom, but this is just a gloss on the fact that, no, we are in the large hands of a very unseen being of which the mushroom is simply the physical residuum. I'll leave you to mull that over as you fall asleep tonight. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>